You guys ready? Let's do this. First Timothy chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 15, unstoppable force. We're talking about the church. That's us. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. That's what Jesus told us in Matthew 16, 18. So we're learning as we walk our way through 1 Timothy how we can become everything Christ died to make us. And uh, so we have now arrived at the second part of chapter 2, and we're going to talk about manhood and womanhood. And if you are brand new here this morning, you picked a great weekend to be here. I mean that with all sincerity. You're going to learn a lot about uh, the differences between men and women. And uh, let me start here by uh, when it comes to the differences between men and women, it has been said, it has been said that uh, a man will pay $2 for a $1 item he needs and a woman will pay $1 for a $2 item that she doesn't need. My wife said, that's true, okay? So a woman worries about the future until she gets a husband. A man never worries about the future until he gets a wife. (laughs) That's true. A successful man is one who makes more money than his wife can spend. A successful woman is one who can find such a man. Married men live longer than single men, but married men are a lot more willing to die. (laughs) Any married man should forget his mistakes. There's no use in two people remembering the same thing. That's true. That's very true. A woman marries a man expecting he will change, but he doesn't. A man marries a woman expecting that she won't change, and she does. (laughs) A woman has the last word in any argument. Anything a man says after that is the beginning of a new argument. (laughs) There are two times when a man doesn't understand a woman, before marriage and after marriage. Okay, that's it. That's, that's the spoon full of sugar to help the medicine go down. That's where we're headed with this study here this morning. Today, our American culture is telling us that there are no essential differences between men and women. You can change your gender if you want. You can be sexually attracted to whomever you want, and there are no responsibilities or callings that come with being a man or a woman. You can do whatever you want. That's our culture. The consequences are obvious, disorder and disintegration, spiritually, psychologically, relationally. Just look around. We have it right here in our culture. Now, take a look at your sermon notes, part of the intro. Our sexuality is not incidental or unimportant or a curse or a burden. Our manhood and womanhood were created by the perfect love, by, by perfect love and infinite wisdom of our brilliant Father. And when you own your manhood and womanhood through the clarifying lens of God's word, you bring much glory and experience much joy. And so, uh, so where, where are we in our study in 1 Timothy? 
When we're talking about the church, we're talking about what is a healthy church. He defines that for us. In the first chapter, we saw doctrine matters, and we looked at the glorious gospel. And then last weekend, Josh taught about praying people, did a great job, the first seven verses. And this weekend, we're talking about manhood and womanhood. I should have switched with him and let him teach this one. What do you guys think, huh? I typically take the harder ones, though, but uh, he did a great job with that one. And so we're talking about manhood, womanhood, and this is where we're headed. I'm going to establish a foundation. First of all, God's designed for men and women. That's foundational. It's in the fuller context of Scripture. But the main part of the text is really about the greatness of womanhood. So we're going to focus in on what is the greatness of womanhood? What are your responsibilities as women? What does the Bible say about women? And then we'll we'll finish by talking about why it's loving and wise to follow God's design. That's Paul's argument for these roles in the church. So that's where we're headed. And we're going to pray first before we read our text and work through these notes. Would you bow your heads with me? Just take a moment once again. So God, we love your presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your perfect love and infinite wisdom, you have given us your word, your laws, which are not arbitrary, but designed for our flourishing spiritually, psychologically, and relationally. Obeying you is not the death of our happiness, but the death of everything that keeps us from full and lasting happiness in you. Help us to be good thinkers and faithful interpreters of your words through the work of your Holy Spirit. May we love, learn, and live our biblical roles as men and women for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. So let's take a look at this text. You'll see it kind of uh, finishes off where we, uh, picks up where we finished off last week on prayer. And verse 8, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Last weekend, we're talking about evangelistic praying. A praying church is a healthy church. But he says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray. So we, we should lead the way spiritually, guys. That's what it's saying here. Lifting holy hands with purity. So there should be a purity to our lives without anger or quarreling. That would be peace. So we're leading the way, and then he says, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or, or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Now, very controversial text. There's a lot of confusion about this in our culture, American culture, and... and, uh, It's very controversial, the fact that I would even speak about this because many churches wouldn't even touch this in our culture today. But uh, the way that we study the Bible, we study the whole counsel of God's word here at Desert Breeze, and we love it, and we think it's really important for our health and happiness in Christ. So let's take a look at this first idea here, God's design for men and women. Here's your first fill in the blank. Men and women are equal in honor, worth, and value. 
And we know that this is just the foundation, so you need to know this before we move into the, the women's roles uh, in the church, in the home. And so men and women are equal in honor, worth, and value. Genesis 1, through, uh, 27 through 28, it says that we are both image bearers of God. Being an image bearer of God, it means a lot of things. It's pretty profound, but it means that we're rational, we're relational. We have this capacity to be able to have a relationship with God. But that's broken because of man's rebellion. 1 Peter 3, 7 says that men and women are both heirs of the grace of life. Galatians 3, 28 says that we are all one in Christ Jesus. So here's the idea. Both men and women are image bearers of God, though marred by sin, but restored in Christ Jesus. Now, now here's what you need to understand, is that marriage will not complete you, Okay? And uh, my wife and I, we've got, uh, we have on our TV, kind of, we have serious radio. And from time to time, we'll listen to the love songs back in the 70s. And it just cracks us up because the love, when you listen to these love songs, and, uh, and even a lot of the movies, even uh, current movies in our culture, they talk about these, they use extravagant language like, uh, like, I can't live without you, and you complete me, and I'll die if I can't have you, and well, you're going to die then. And... Uh, because, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy, the language. So we kind of look at each other and go, that's crazy. Only Christ completes us. Marriage is not meant to complete us. And that's the idea of being image bearers of God. Marriage doesn't complete you. Christ completes you. Singleness is a gift from God. Marriage is a gift from God. So, so remember that. Keep that in mind. That's the Bible. The Bible is very clear about that. And if you don't develop a deeply fulfilling relationship with Jesus Christ, you will either be poorly single or poorly married. And, um, and so lonely, insecure people become lonely, insecure married people. Just ask married people, okay? I know a few. And um, so identity in anyone or anything other than Christ is essentially unstable. That, you have to know that foundation. And so the Christian life is about being supremely satisfied in the only one who is supremely satisfying. <laughs> That's Jesus. It's knowing him. It's knowing God. And then out of that, then you can build a, a healthy relationship. If you don't start there, you're shot. You're done. You're, it's over. So men and women are equal in importance, but different in performance and roles. And that's the next point in your notes. God designed men and women with complementary roles in the home, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, and church, and that's the text we're looking at, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, that reveals truths about Jesus. So God designed men and women with complementary roles in, in the home and church that reveals truths about Jesus. The Trinity is a great analogy that helps us to understand this, how these kind of roles work out. The Father directs the Son, John 14, 31, and then the Son submits to the Father, Philippians 2, 8, yet both are fully God with equal value. So the Trinity analogy is a good one to, to keep in mind. So men were designed to reveal Christ's relationship to the church. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands... Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That verse is both beautiful and brutal. It makes me tremble when I read that verse. 
because the bar is so incredibly high. And unless I am, as that song we sang, sweetly broken, lost for words and lost in love with him, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. And so when I read that, it, I, it, I shudder as a man. I just like go, oh, my goodness. I've got to stay close to Christ. I've got to understand what he did for me before I can ever uh, do what I'm supposed to do for my wife. And then women are designed to reveal the church's relationship to Christ. Women were designed to reveal, so men were designed to reveal Christ's relationship to the church. Women were designed to reveal the church's relationship to Christ. Or it could be also Christ's relationship to the Father as Christ is submitting to the Father. So listen to what it says in Hebrews 5, I'm sorry, uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's really key, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So it's, it's fascinating. History begins with a wedding party. We see that in, in Genesis chapters one and two, chapter two particularly. Jesus' ministry begins with a wedding party and then history ends at a wedding party. The marriage supper of the lamb, Revelation talks about that. So God designed marriage to be a reenactment of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to display Christ's covenant to his bride, the church. So, so human romance is, is a glorious experience, but even the best is a gift from God and a pointer to the ultimate experience of knowing God's covenant love. Show me the best romance on this planet, and it is a dim glimpse of what we can experience in our relationship with God. And so the the human romance, the relationship is only meant to, to put on display the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the point of it. That's really important. Same-sex marriage defiles, distorts, defaces the parable of the most beautiful act in the world, which is to point to Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. So here's my, here's my best attempt at defining these roles. Uh, it's on your notes there, next fill in the blank. Men are to be servant leaders who provide and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. So men are called to be servant leaders who provide. You, you want to focus more on the providing and protecting women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. So, okay, listen, guys. All the guys look up here just for a minute. We're to take the bullets. That's our job. We take the bullets. And here's the, the woman's job as it defined by Scripture. Women are to be servant lovers who support and nurture leadership. Notice this, from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. I asked my wife, she's taught this many times, you know, and as far as the women's roles. And she, I, so I asked her, I said, so help me to define this. What is, what is the woman's role as defined in the church? She says, well, it's support, it's nurture, it's life-giving. I go, I like that. That's good. 
And so let me just say this, men, if you want to learn how to take the bullets, you need to sign up for the men's breakfast and, and show up to the summit and hang out with other guys here at the church. Ladies, if you want to learn how to be servant lovers who support and nurture leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationship, you need to hang out with the women in this church. Because we have a lot of women that are really good at this. And um, that's, that's really important to be connected. You become like the people you hang out with. And so, and let me just say this before I move on. It is never, ever, ever, ever loving to let someone sin against you spiritually, emotionally, f- physically, or sexually. If you read either one of these and think of abuse, that's not what they're, they're saying. It's never loving to let someone else abuse you. Did you know that? You're not being a servant leader or a servant lover if, you're, if, if you let them abuse you or hurt you. And that works both ways, by the way. That works, works both ways. Whether it's man, men abusing women or women abusing men. But this, this whole Me Too movement would, would be non-existent if men were servant leaders in our culture. That wouldn't even exist. But we have a culture of predators, thugs, and Peter Pans. Guys that won't grow up. And it's evident. It's all around us. And so let me illustrate this by giving you a quick story here. And then we'll move on. Um, to my favorite part of the message, and that's the woman's responsibility. (laughs) I can hardly wait until I get there, but I got to tell you this story first. So let me tell you this story. Let's just say among the young adults here at Desert Breeze, a young man and woman, say in their 20s, they find themselves chatting before the worship service. He likes what he hears and sees and says, hey, are you sitting with anyone? So they, they sit together. They notice how each engages uh, with God in worship. That's important. And when the service is over, as they are leaving, he says, do you have any lunch plans? I'd love to treat you to lunch. And, and at that point, she can say she is not interested. I do have plans, but thanks. Or she can say the opposite. I do, but let me make a call. I think I can change them. I'd love to go. So she gets in the car, they drive to a local sushi place about 15 minutes away, and as they drive, he finds out that she has a black belt in martial arts, (laughs) and that she is one of the best in the state. So when they arrive and get out of the car, there are two men ominously blocking their way and say, pretty girlfriend you've got there. We'd like her purse and your wallet. In fact, she's so pretty, we'd like her. The thought goes through his mind, she can whip these guys. (laughs) But instead of stepping behind her, he takes her arm, pulls her back behind him, and says, if you're going to touch her, it will be over my dead body. When they make their move, he tackles them both and tells her to run. They knock him unconscious, but before they know what hit them, she has put them both on their backs with their teeth knocked out. (laughs) That's right. And a little crowd has gathered The police and ambulance come. She gets in the ambulance with the young man, and she has one main thought on the way to the hospital. 
this is the kind of man I want to marry. Now, here's the point. Here's the point. Date or marry a girl who has a black belt in martial arts. <laughs> no, 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 that, no, I'm kidding. That's not the, that's, hey, X that, that's not, that's not the point. It's not the point of the, the, that, that story. No, here, here's the point. The deeper differences, this is an important point, the deeper differences of manhood and womanhood are not superior or inferior competencies, but rather deep dis- dispositions written on our hearts. See, the man took the initiative, asked her out, took responsibility to pay for the lunch, and did all he could to honor and protect her. The woman had the wisdom to discern and respond according to her desire and join the dance. She accepts his responsibility to provide and protect and does not feel belittled by it, but honored, and she loves it. This has nothing to do with competencies in planning or, I mean, she might have been a better planner than him as far as planning a dinner date or, or even, well, she might have more money than him or she certainly had better self-defense uh, uh, than him, but it has nothing to do with our competencies, inferior, superior competencies. This is a God-given role for men to be servant leaders who protect, provide and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. This is a God-given role for a woman to be servant lovers who support and nurture leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. That's it. That's the way the Bible has established it. Now, let's talk about Let's talk about the greatness of womanhood. And let me tell you everything I know about women. Well, that's about all I have. I have nothing. But God has it covered right here for us, okay? That's why we're going to, I always default to God's word, okay? That's a good thing to default to. It's like, I don't know. But God has something to say. This is God speaking, not me, okay? I'm just telling you, this is God speaking. So this would be a good time, guys, for you to nudge your wife in the ribs and say, are you taking good notes right now? No, you better not if you want to leave here alive, okay? You better not do that. Don't do that. So let's talk about the greatness of womanhood it's found. And this is the main part of our text. And it's verses 9 through 12. And what I did is I took key words and just took them and defined them. I couldn't take all of them, but I took really the important ones, I would say, and just defined them. So let's walk through this. Here's the first one, modest. The greatness of womanhood, modest. What What does it mean to be modest? This is an undistracting attractiveness that is between idolizing and neglecting our bodies. So when the Bible uses this word modest, that's really what it's talking about. So it's undistracting attractiveness. I like that that phrase, that idea there, that is between idolizing, you don't idolize your body, or neglecting your body. Now, you guys would agree, you guys know this, immodesty is a major problem in our culture today. It's it's out of control. Skin-tight clothes, low necklines, high hemlines, short shorts are just kind of the normal And let me read the text here again, uh, verses 9 through 10. Likewise, also the woman, also that, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self control. In other words, he's just saying, don't draw attention to your physical beauty, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. 
don't draw attention to worldly wealth in that, what he's saying there, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, here's the wrong question you need to be asking yourself, ladies. Wrong question. What makes me look most attractive? That's the wrong question. Here's the right question. What can I wear that would best bring glory to God? That would be the right question. And um, there's so much more I could say there, but let me, let me continue on here with this idea here, is that true beauty is about love and not about looks. We want to make Christ visible, both men and women. We want to make the beauty of Christ known. That's our goal. That's our desire. As Christians, we want to bring glory to him. So what is the beauty of Christ? Well, listen to Isaiah 53, 2 through 3. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He's talking of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So the beauty of Christ is the beauty of love, not the beauty of looks, The beauty of Christ is the beauty of sacrifice, not the beauty of skin. The beauty of Christ is the beauty of character, not the beauty of clothing. It is the beauty of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, which is the most stunning kind of beauty. Now, my heart breaks for you, ladies, because we live in a culture that you are inundated with all kinds of uh, images of beauty defined by our world that are not consistent with what the Bible teaches. I don't know how you do it and how you keep from having a perpetual dissatisfaction in who you are and your identity based on all the images in movies and magazines and social media. You are inundated, and my heart breaks for you. But you don't get your definition from the world as it relates to beauty. You get it from God's word. God's word. You can be big or small, tall or short, bad complexioned or good complexioned, thick hair or thin hair, and be an absolutely gorgeous woman as the Spirit brings you more and more into conformity with Jesus. So the idea here is that women in the church should not distract others from God, but instead live to attract others to God by how you dress and your attitude and actions. Now, let me give you just some quick uh, insight, a little wisdom here. If you're looking for a spouse, you guys guys okay with this? You don't have a choice, do you? I'm going to tell you anyway, okay? So if you're looking for a spouse, whether you're male or female, Be attracted to something in the other person that gets stronger rather than weaker over time with lots of Christian community input. So what gets stronger rather than weaker over time? Character. What gets weaker over time? Looks and money. So so use your noggin. Think about character. Think about character. You look for someone that has character. And do that with lots of Christian community input because your loved ones, your friends, your family can tell you, give you input about that lug nut, okay? Or, or person that you're, I shouldn't have said that, but, but uh, I said that because I've had that experience many times with gals that they're dating guys that are like, this guy's messed up. What the heck, can't you see this? And they can't. They're so infatuated. 
Oh, and I just see the train wreck down the road. It's like, no, you need community input. Don't withdraw, press into community and let people be able to speak truth to you in love so that you have a healthy, you can cultivate a healthy relationship. Okay, that was just the one word, okay? Here's the next one, quiet, quiet. It is, uh, and this is what it means. I've defined it here for you. So that's this modest, now quiet. It is to not speak or behave in a way that undermines the authority. Look at verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I noticed some of you guys underlining that verse in your Bible as I, as I read that. <laughs> quietness, did you say quietness? Did he say quietness? Yes, I said quietness. Does that mean she should never talk? I'm kind of liking that. That's a great idea. That's not what it's saying, okay? Don't jump to conclusions here. So, so what does it mean here, this learn quietly with all submissiveness? Well, this, this idea, the Greek word here for learn quietly is used two other times in this chapter, so it kind of gives us a little bit of an understanding of the definition of this. It's used in verse 2 and 12. So look at verse 2. If you have your Bibles open, it says, pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. So it's used right there. So he's talking about all of us living this kind of life, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, so he's saying here that all godly people should live a quiet life. So it's not just for women, it should be for all of us. This gives us the tone and the extent of the word. So a peaceful and quiet life is, is not a life of total silence, it's a life untroubled and serene and content is what he's saying. The, the other place it's used is in verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So to remain quiet is the opposite of, of teaching or exercising authority over a man. You notice also in verse 11, it says, with all submissiveness. So here's the point. The point isn't whether she says anything or not, but how she says it. How she says it, how she speaks the truth. She, you have, ladies, you have to speak the truth, but it's how you speak the truth. Do you do it with a gentle spirit? Do you with, do it with this out of a sense of contentment and, and love? That's, that's the point here. So the point isn't whether she says anything or not, but whether she is submissive and supports the authority of men God has called to oversee the church. And that's the context here. It's, it's actually speaking in the broader sense of, of the church. In, um, and what's interesting about this culture is that in, in this culture, women were possessions. They were chattel. You guys know what chattel is? It's, it means that you're possessed. They were possessions to be used and abused and discarded. And so no doubt these women were probably experiencing their freedom in Christ and had become maybe a little bit overbearing or over the top and therefore not very attractive to outsiders to the faith considering the culture. I, was, uh, I, I saw on the news here about a year and a half ago, uh, Saudi Arabia began to let women start driving. And uh, they interviewed some of the ladies and they were just excited, you know, they were just over the top. So I, so I can imagine these ladies, when they begin to understand their freedom in Christ, oh my goodness, they couldn't keep quiet. I mean, just like, whoa, this is awesome. And they're just saying, hey, wait, 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 you have a place. We love you ladies. And it's great you're experiencing your freedom, but here's your place. Here's your role. And that's, that's what, they're, what they're doing here. That's what he's saying here. Very, very gentle, very kind, very loving. And, and so, and then the next word is teaching. He talks about teaching, women teaching. 
It's a modest, quiet teaching. And this is the idea here. Women should teach, but not where it is exercising authority over men. Is, is kind of the idea here. So let's look at other places in the Bible that talks about women teaching, because it, the Bible talks about women teaching in the church. And, and so Titus 2.3, it says, the older women are to teach the younger women. 2 Timothy 1.5.3.14, Timothy was taught the scripture from his mom and grandmother. Acts 18.26, Priscilla and Aquila help Apollos to understand the way of God more accurately. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, men and women are both to make disciples. Colossians 3, 16, men and women are both to be teaching and admonishing one another. 1 Corinthians 11, women are praying and prophesying in public worship. So, so Paul is not prohibiting women from teaching. Women teach in a lot of roles here at Desert Reese. They lead small groups. They lead ministries. They're just, in fact, I was telling someone last night, if all the women left this church, you know, Monday, we would be shutting it down that day. We'd be shutting the church down because women play a really important role here at Desert Breeze. Really, really important. And uh, so it, the idea here, the context is to teach or exercise authority over a man. Teach and exercise authority go together. And so it takes us to the next point. I think the next point explains this a little bit more clearly. Submissive, the idea of submissive. Women are not to assume the office of elder in the church. That's, that's what the point that he's making here is that women are not to assume the office of elder in the church. Notice what he says in verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach, to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. So in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, by the way, I'm gonna talk about the, the leadership qualifications, but actually they're, they're qualified, they're, they're character qualities that every one of us should aspire to that we're going to be looking at next week. We're going to look at what servant leaders look like. And so that's going to be more focused, kind of more on the men, but it's actually for all of us to really understand that. But, um, but in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, 5, 17, elders are charged with the leadership and instruction of the church. You're going to see that next week. We're going to talk about that. But their primary role is leadership and instruction in the church. So it's no coincidence what Paul said in verse 12 that they're not to exercise authority or teach over a man. So he's talking eldership, general oversight of the church. That's what he's talking about here. So what is this authority of eldership? Well, Luke twenty two twenty six says that leaders are to serve. So the men in particular, the men in general, but the, the, the elders in particular here at the church should be the best at foot washing. That's what it means to serve. That's what ser uh, servant leadership is all about. I mean, I look at the 13th chapter of John. It, it, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and then he turned to them and said, this is what you guys are all about. Do unto each other as I've done to you, and that's how I want you guys to lead, in essence, and that's what he said. And so 2 Corinthians 10, 8, 13, 10, they're given the authority to build up the church. 1 Peter 5, 3, it's not a domineering authority, but they are to be examples. So servant leadership leads by persuasion, by teaching, not coercion or political maneuvering. Elder leadership is always subordinate to the Bible. And this, so this is how we define it. And this is important for you to know. And, and when you look for a church, this is what you need to look for. 
because uh, the church, based on what the Bible teaches, and this is how Desert Breeze is led, the church is to be led by Jesus Christ through a, through a plurality of leaders known as elders and deacons and deaconesses. And that's, uh, that's biblical. And so, and, and, and so that's, just keep that in mind. There are many churches in the valley that are CEO-run churches. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just not biblical and it's not healthy. It's not a healthy arrangement. And so here's what authority looks like. It's, it's on your notes there. Authority refers to the divine calling of spiritual gifted men to take primary responsibility as elders for Christ-like servant leadership and teaching in the church. And the qualifications are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. So we have seven uh, elders currently in the process of adding a couple more, but we have seven elders currently. I am first among equals as the founding pastor, though they can vote me off the island if my life and doctrine disqualify me biblically. That is really healthy, and you need to know that. If you see some, something in my life that's inappropriate, you know, my life or doctrine gets out of whack, you need to come and talk to the elders. Come and talk to my wife. You know, she can hold me accountable too, but, that, but come and talk to the elders. I, and I'm the founding pastor. I set this up this way because I felt like it was the, the most biblical and the most healthy way to establish a church. And I've got to say something just about these, these elders. They love this church. They love the people of this church, and they love Jesus like crazy. And, um, and they do a phenomenal job. I've been around the church my whole life, and I've never seen a group of guys that love the Lord as much as these guys love the Lord and know his word and then love the people in this church. And let me just say, are taking bullets for you. They are. I see it. I see it all the time. To protect you and provide the very best for you. That's, and I think it's really healthy. Here's what submission is. It refers to the divine calling of the rest of the church, both men and women. So this is the rest of the church because the context is actually leadership, general oversight of the church, and women's response to that. So it refers to the divine calling of the rest of the church, both men and women, to honor and affirm the leadership of the elders to be equipped by it for the hundreds and hundreds of various ministries available to men and women in the service of Christ. So, okay, whoo, there's a lot there. Let me just kind of transition here and let's talk football, okay? So Tom Brady and the Patriots are going back to the Super Bowl, okay? Okay, there's, there's, there's a few people in here. Anybody excited about that? Okay, there's like two people, three, okay, there's three. We'll get security to guard you on your way out because I think you're sitting around people that don't like that, okay? So how many became instant uh, Rams fans, okay? Anybody? Rams fans, okay. Big Super Bowl next weekend. I expect you guys to be here next weekend before we have the Super Bowl party, before you have your own Super Bowl party. I expect you to be here next weekend. But I was thinking about Tom Brady and uh, really the things that I have in common with Tom Brady, and that wasn't a joke, okay? But uh, the only thing really, and as I thought, I don't have much in common with Tom Brady, except the only, thing I, uh, the only thing Tom Brady and I have in common is that we both 
married super, supermodels. Yeah. We married supermodels. Yeah. And uh, I don't know about his supermodel, but I know a lot about my supermodel. And my supermodel does all she can to live according to the greatness of womanhood as described in this list and has done really a wonderful job. And in fact, I wouldn't have been able to do the job that I do if she hadn't have done the job that she does. I wouldn't even have lasted in ministry for a couple years. And, and she is a supermodel in so many different ways, like many of the women here at Desert Breeze. I really believe that. I see that. I see that in many of you. And, and what, what that does to me is that, that it makes me want to be a better man and to live out my role for her and to serve her. Now, let me just summarize what I just said about this idea of the greatness of womanhood. The, the greatness of womanhood is a woman who attracts others to God by her dress, attitude, and actions, is untroubled, serene, and content, quiet spirit, not divisive, can articulate her faith and instruct others in the Lord, honors and affirms the worthy leadership God has given to serve her. That's it. And there's other, other places in the Bible where it talks about that. First, uh, Peter talks more and gives some more details and all that, so you can look elsewhere. But, but let's answer the question, why it's loving and wise to follow God's design. This is really hard here. Why it's loving and wise to follow God's design. Paul gives three reasons for saying that men and not women should bear the primary responsibility for leading and teaching the church. Here's the first one. It's, it is consistent with God's order of creation. So uh, look at verse, you can't look there, but in verse, uh, well, you can if you have your Bibles open. Look at verse 13. Adam was formed first, then Eve. You see that in Genesis 2. So Paul is basing his teaching on God's original order in creation before the fall. God created man first, put, put him in the garden, gave him the responsibility over the garden and, and the moral pattern for life in the garden. And then, and then he created the woman as his partner and assistant to help him carry the responsibility into action. Next reason is when God's order is rejected, it brings disorder and disintegration. Look at verse 14. Adam was, was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Now, I've heard that taught totally wrongly. I've heard it taught like this. Well, see, women are more susceptible to deception than men. That's not true. That's actually not true. In fact, I believe that, uh, I, I believe that what he's actually saying here, we'll get to in a moment, but but, and I don't believe that that's true, that women are more susceptible to temptation or deception than men because statistically men are much more likely to be incarcerated than women. Just go to the prisons here in, in the state. Men are more likely to be incarcerated than women, nine times more likely. In 2014, more than 73% of those arrested in the United States were males. 73%. Men accounted for 80% of persons arrested for violent crime. So I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's talking about something that's much, much more fundamental here. And there's three thoughts I want to kind of walk you through as it relates to Genesis uh, chapter 3. 
And um, because that's what he's referring to. Adam was not deceived, but, but the woman. So if you go back to Genesis 3, so here's the first thought. Satan spoke to the woman, not the man. Did you notice that in the garden? He comes to the woman and not the man, Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman. That's the first thought. The second thought Adam is evidently with Eve at the time. Listen to what it says in verse 6 of Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. He's there all alone. You lug nut. What the heck? You're supposed to take the bullets. What in the world are you doing standing back, having her to go and fight off the enemy? That's the point. Who is God, dis when God comes back into the garden, who does he bring disapproval to? Is it to the woman or to the man? Adam. That's the third point, Genesis 3, 9. But the Lord God called to the, to the man and said to him, where are you? To the man. To the man. Where are you? What does he do? He, he blames the woman. <laughs> yeah, that's what we love to do. It's the woman. It's her. This would be a great marriage if it wasn't for her. I thought that for at least two decades. It took me a long time to figure that one out and to begin to do what I'm supposed to do. Notice also in Genesis 3.17, and to Adam, he, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. There's no voice. She just gave it to him. There's no voice there, but evidently there was some kind of communication. He's following her lead. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree, and he begins to give the curse that comes down on him and the rest of civilization. The rest of the world. So here's the point. Adam forsook his responsibility as servant leader to protect and provide for his wife. Satan defied the created order going to the wife and putting her in the position of protector and provider. And having the husband passively go along with it, wrecking havoc on their home. So the fall of Adam and Eve reveals to us that when God's order is rejected, it makes the man and woman more vulnerable and it brings disorder and disintegration. That's the bigger idea here. So God's order, his laws, his design are to protect us from the worst and provide the very best for us. I like what Matthew Henry says, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. So this leads to one of Paul's most difficult statements, verse 15. Look what it says. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I don't think salvation, he means justification. I, be, I believe it's sanctification. I think it's a purification. You're not saved by our works, but there's a purification through the difficulty of childbearing or the difficulty of not having children. And I think that's what he's talking about here. 
And so the last point on your notes, we were designed to know, love, and obey God supremely. And when we are faithful to that design, we flourish even when life is hard, such as childbearing. So men and women are equal in importance but different in performance. The difference between men and women complements one another for the health and the flourishing of the home, church, and culture. So here's your motive. Here's what your motive should be for for us fulfilling our roles. It goes back to the, the big narrative of the Bible. What's the Bible about? The Bible is a love story. The Bible is a love story. This is what should motivate us. The Bible is a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, and is willing to do anything to rescue the one he loves. And that's us. That's us. And, and, and the more that ravishes your heart, the more you'll be the kind of man and woman God has created you to be. Now, if you want more on this topic, one of my major resources was desiringgod.org. Just type in to their search manhood and womanhood, and it will bring up a whole bunch of resources there. Next weekend, we're going to talk about dedicated leaders, servant leaders. We're going to be looking at the characteristics of maturity. And then the following weekend, we're going to really talk about, the next two weekends, we're just talking about what does it look like to be a healthy Christian? What does a healthy Christian look like? Let's pray. Let's just take a moment and, and take this to God in prayer. So, Father God, we, we acknowledge and we grieve the history of abuses of women personally and systematically and the present evils globally and locally in the exploitation and, and diminishing of women and girls. And on the other hand, we grieve the feminist and the egalitarian impulses that minimize God-given differences between men and women and dismantle the order God has designed for the flourishing of our life together. May we be men and women of valor who are willing to swim against the unbiblical currents of our culture and to inhabit biblical manhood and womanhood for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' beautiful and glorious name, and everyone said... Amen. Love you guys.